Hey guys, what's up? It is week 271, and uh, I want to mention that I've been doing um, the the secret top 10. We'll come back. I have no turnaround on that. I have one recorded. I have another one planned for the season, you know, opener and stuff like that. But I just uh, I, I want to take care of 1980, to be honest, and the retro year. Been doing a lot for that. I've technically hit the halfway mark, and um, some of the movies that I had already covered on here, I've been recording with some people. I have those recorded. I just need to edit them. Um, you'll see the other video popping up first this Sunday of Troy Howarth with City of the Living Dead. But remember that these are just very casual um, conversations. So sometimes they stray more into 1980 or, or that one strays into Fulci, even complaining about social media because I'm old. And I like to complain. So bear with that. But it, it's a general idea. The general whatever is to talk about a certain movie from 1980 that I've already covered on the show. And just talk about their thoughts on 1980 and just wherever it goes. So I've got a bunch of people lined up. A bunch of them recorded already. So if you're looking. Um, and anybody that does podcast or anything like that. have seen a movie that's been covered on the show before from 1980 and, and interested reach out to me especially if we have a relationship and, and anything like that so let's hop into the first movie of the week and this is from visual vengeance uh, technically their first release here um bloody muscle bodybuilder in hell and that's a mouthful i definitely wanted to make sure i said it right aka the japanese texas chainsaw massacre or something the japanese evil dead sorry about that the japanese texas chainsaw massacre is another movie um japanese chainsaw hell or something like that japanese hell getting all these confused this is definitely um, <laughs> the Japanese Evil Dead. Uh, this was made in 1995. So if you think of, like the horror landscape in the 90s, you have stuff like Demon Knight, I believe, and Tales from the Hood, and even Seven is coming out out around that time. If you consider that a horror film or not. So that's kind of what's going on. So um, this is a, a dirt sheet movie, um, and I, I this is one of these ones that it's kind of hard to tell if it was. It's from the master tapes. It's probably shot on sixteen, and then there's no actual, you know, like HD the foot film footage. So they edited it on tape, which is kind of like a lot of the things that like Saturn's Core, which are a lot of SOVs, or this Visual Vengeance seems to be doing. Now their other release that was put out was the Necrophiles, and they have Suburban Sasquatch. So they have like all these kind of SOV movies lined up. We also have like a, I said another company in like Saturn's Core that does that, or or Wild Eye, um, not Wild Eye is the kind of parent company of this one, but uh, SRS will put out a lot of SOV on uh, Blu-ray or cheap movies that never had a Blu-ray or, you know, mastered on tapes, whatever, that's the element. So they're kind of doing that. This is one that had an overseas release, but, uh, you know, it was, you know, some people aren't region free, it's hard to import, and it was just a DVD, um, as far as I know, and if there was a Blu-ray, it was probably very expensive in German, one of those deals, but yeah, so it was really nice to see this get a Blu-ray release because it's one that I've always wanted to watch. Um, yeah, I, I am a fan of Evil Dead, of course, and I do like Japanese cinema for sure, um, especially during this time. So this story is kind of, a, it's 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 very Evil Dead, okay? And it's not the first one that has been heavily inspired by Evil Dead, and it won't, it won't be the last, right? That, that crazy, you know, very energetic, Sam Raimi-style filmmaking um, that a lot of uh, directors from this time do share. I would say that Peter Jackson even has that kind of style to a certain extent. And even in, like, the Hong Kong cinema at times, I would notice, like, Herman Yao seemed to have that energy camera movement stuff or Don Coscarelli just tons of people right and it's just kind of an independent spirit and this is definitely here so essentially what we have here is a long time ago um this man's um 
I, I don't remember exactly how this ends up, but essentially this house has been haunted because uh, uh, ex-lover or something killed herself in this house. And uh, the son finally goes in there, but he goes in there with this psychic priest and his uh, girlfriend who's like a reporter who's interested in the cult and everything like that. And this spirit attaches itself to the priest, um, the psychic, which is kind of funny to think the idea of a priest being possessed. And that's kind of what they do is this, they have to fight like the evil spirits. So you're kind of screwed SOL on that. You're like, who do we call the on possess a priest? Um, essentially what happens is it turns into a splatter fest of them trying to take out the priest. He gets messages from his father. And did I mention he's a bodybuilder? Well, he's definitely that. And that plays kind of a little part in this movie as well. Hence the title and everything like that. So a lot of it is just like these weird, crazy moments of him fighting against this possessed priest. There's a lot of body parts being removed and then the body parts kind of coming together and also running around and like attacking him. You know, we, we've seen a lot of kind of uh, crazy stuff like this. So yeah, and it does have, you know, the idea of like Japanese ghost stories where you go inside a house and you're kind of trapped by the ghost. You can't leave, yada, yada, yada. So yeah, like um, the splatter effects are fun. They're low budget. They're definitely from an older time for sure. And uh, they looks like they use some stop motion in here that I really enjoyed, especially at the end when the blob character is revived. That was some really fun stuff. And exactly how the character looks too is just absolutely ridiculous, like kind of a, a bubble eye. And they do fun things where like an eye will be poked out or, and it'll push back or something like that. It'll be back in its socket. Like I said, it's it's really, you know, just kind of like a do-it-yourself gore film. And it's not like overly, you know, offensive or anything like that as far as, you know, like sexual content or sexually explicit stuff like that. It's very kind of just a splatter kind of fun movie that I think a lot of people will kind of enjoy in this this vein. Um, there's a lot of weapons used, uh, including weights um, and a shotgun and there's a groovy uh, line said of course like I said this is very close to the evil dead picture but I enjoyed it and I enjoyed it um, as far as splatter is concerned I've always been into that kind of stuff especially the kind of more fun splatter I like all kind of horror but the fun splatter has a certain charm to it especially from the 90s when uh, you know the 90s a lot of people consider some of the worst stuff I, I don't think we got until like kind of bad horror films until like the late 90s early 2000s for a while I think we had some real weak stuff and there was only a couple gems that stood out there but as far as the special features are concerned we have an archival l um, 1995 sd master from original tapes new interview with director shinchichi fuzukazawa commentary track with featuring directors adam green and joe lynch of course um these guys have had a couple other commentary tracks they did the friday third some of the friday 13th movies commentary track with japanese film historian james harper and uh he actually had like he lives in japan he talks a little bit about the history of horror and what the possible inspirations are and that kind of stuff he mentioned shinya to and stuff like that which i can see like you know haruko the goblin definitely it's from the same kind of cloth um then we have special effects video archival or uh, original archival trailers from japanese release archival image gallery behind the scenes image gallery outtakes visual vengeance trailers reversible sleeve featuring japanese home video liner notes by matt uh delisandro of horror boobs retro vhs sticker collectible mini poster all this kind of stuff in your vintage style laminated video star rental card which is cool because these visual vengeance releases have put in little like trinkets and stuff inside the releases there's a nice uh stuff with uh necrophiles as well but it's like if you look in here you have some stuff like just a little video card and and like stickers that you could put around your room <laughs> they really go out it makes it kind of a fun release and everything like that and this is an enjoyable one too and definitely deserves to be seen stateside um 
and I think that a lot of people will dig it. And it, it's got like it's short too. It's an hour and like three minutes, so you're in and out. Um, doesn't really wear out its welcome, you know. If you're worried about being stuck in just like a very repetitive nature of a gore film or nothing like that, it, it doesn't wear out its welcome. So definitely check out Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell. Um, I always want to say from Hell on there, but yeah, good stuff. Okay, the next up is the Giallo Essentials box set, volume three. Now this is the black box. We already had a red and a yellow box. Of course, now we're having the black box here. And what's really cool about this release is that um, the other ones had been uh, like single releases. They've already been out and everything like this. All these movies in here, it's the first time they've been on Blu-ray, especially stateside. Um, I don't think they've ever had Blu-ray releases. A lot of these movies, I've never seen home video releases for anything like that. So uh, it was very cool. And in fact... I'm unfamiliar with any of these movies. I've heard of them in title and seen their covers, but they've never had like a wide release here. So yeah, it's a very nice uh, hard box here. And I'll get into the first movie. We're going to review these separately, of course. And the first one up is Smile Before Death, a film by Silvio Amadio, who did Amok, I believe, um, if I'm not mistaken. And this one is kind of like your, uh, I, I guess it's kind of like a gaslighting story. And I've been seeing a lot of movies with gaslighting in there, and not all of them are handled wonderfully. They become repetitive. This one is a little bit different than that. There's a lot of twists and turns, and it was very much cut from the same cloth as the Carol Baker and Berto Lenzi films, the kind of early Euro thriller giallos, where, you know, there's a lot of, you know, um, gothic in the sense that it's like family you know betrayals and rich people and and that kind of seedy incest and stuff like that and smile before death is a hundred percent kind of in that vein here uh you know aristocratic rich people and just being sleazy pieces of crap second third fourth husbands and wives and all this kind of stuff so essentially the plot follows uh daughter returning home to kind of um to, because her mother had just been uh killed in, in the very beginning um in kind of a brutal way with her throat slit um, but it's kind of looks like a suicide. It's really, you know, iffy as hell. Right. Um, and so, uh, she, she ends up meeting her like fourth or fourth, um, her mom's fourth husband and, uh, the actress Rosabella, she's in a bunch of stuff. You recognize her right away. If you've seen any jelly or Euro films and, uh, she's younger than the, the husband and like, you can tell they're kind of an item and they kind of take her under the wing. And they're talking to her, and like it's it's obvious that they're up to something. They were involved with her death. There's also kind of a you know um, uh, uh, like a maid that's around too that's very suspicious. So they start to fill the daughter's head in with everything like that. And as it goes on, you kind of catch on what this daughter is starting to manipulate the situation and stuff. And you learn more pieces to the puzzle. The one thing that I have to mention is the score. It's got this really upbeat, bizarre score to it that's placed throughout the entire movie. It's equally addicting and equally annoying. I enjoy it, but you know you could just see it constantly playing it's like, and, and like it'll definitely get stuck in your head it's memorable um so this one goes places that are pretty insane because the the daughter is supposedly like 15 she's about 16 years old and they're worried she's coming of age right so they're gonna lose the inheritance that they were just got which is is awesome but um the rosabella in this um she's she's like a photographer so like they get into this like weird stint where they're taking nude photos of her in this weird artistic way and like the the, the stepfather is like it just gets real much and gross and all that kind of way of course it's like high class at the same time so it's that sleazy seedy underbelly
jelly and high class stuff that is just kind of what the gels are made for this is a solid gel I, I liked it quite a bit um, so and the special features are as follows we have there's Eng you can listen to this one in English or Italian not all of them are in English and Italian some of them have not had a dub or they do not have the dub on here then we have a brand new audio commentary with authors and critics Troy Haworth and Nathaniel Thompson that's always a treat of course uh, they do a good job they do mention the score quite a bit original Italian English front and end titles smile of the hyena brand new video interview with Stefano Amito film journalist and son of director Silvio Amato Amadio never before never before seen extended nude scenes not used in the final film and that kind of includes some lesbian scenes kind of elongated and anything like that but yeah this is a really solid movie not gratuitously gory or anything like that but it has plenty of twists and the ending twist I was like we're doing that that's what's happening and then we have like two or three added on top of that because like so many of the giallos have like these generation like divides in here where it's like old people taking advantage of young people or young people taking advantage of old people it's always in there and it's always like sexual situations and and the ending originally in this I had seen like three or four times right if you watch any Umberto Lenzi movies I don't want to say the movies because it will spoil it for it just involves car accidents and you're like okay yeah this is a Lenzi 101 or Giallo 101 or even probably I'm assuming Hitchcock 101 but at the very end of this there's a couple twists at the end and it's just it kind of bumps it up to the point and there's like a little little sting of cruelty um and I was like that's really well done. So it, it made it a pretty solid giallo. I liked it before, and then the ending, I was like, ah. And then I was like, you won me over because you did something a little different that I didn't expect. So that's good stuff. That is Smile Before Death. Also a great title when you incorporate all the uh, fashion model stuff. So good movie. I, I would really recommend people that are big fans of giallos checking it out for sure. Okay, the next one up from the giallo essentials is The Weapon, The Hour, and The Motive. And uh, this director here, I think this is their only directorial film, or at least their only uh, horror thriller one. And I must admit, this one is, what, 72 as well? This is my favorite of the three. I was actually really kind of taken back at one scene in the film um, involving, uh, you know, what is that, self-flagellants? Or um, when they when the um, religious people beat themselves uh, for their, you know, their transgressions, um, they whip themselves. And, and there's a scene in this where it, it just is like, it, it's almost like an exploitation hell moment where I was like, I can't believe this is in here. It's beautifully shot. And it's just, it was very intense. And I was just taken back. I was like, boy, oh boy. So uh, essentially what we have here is, is something a little different for the Italian horror film or jolly or thriller. Um, usually you have priests killing kids or, or in these horror, in these kind of genre films this way around we have a priest who's killed in the very beginning now i, I assume that there's some religious figures killed and stuff like the um was the one in the name of the rose and you know the rosary murders and stuff like that but it, as far as italian films are concerned they do mention this in the commentary um uh it's a uh, who what's the uh, lady who does the commentary andrea heller nichols she's very intelligent she kind of approaches her commentaries at kind of like i would say almost like uh you know a historian very intelligent about it and stuff like that and enjoyed that commentary but, um, so she mentions this, and right away when I was watching this, I couldn't help but think, who saw her die? And Don't Torture a Duckling are the first two that come to my mind when you think religious kind of thriller giallos or, or have those aspects in here. And it's definitely in here. So it takes place kind of like at this, it's just oh, surrounded by a lot of religious figures, nuns and priests. And in the very beginning, this, this priest, you know, he as is, you know, he, he, he's sleeping around with these women and he breaks it off with a couple of them and he's promptly murdered like right after. And we kind of enter this police officer, this detective who starts to kind of investigate and he starts to get involved with one of the women that, you know, this priest was involved with. And we're, we're kind of breaking the story down and all this kind of stuff. And there's a, there's a young child that's kind of snooping 
looped around there and, and, and plays in this nice little kind of plot device or with the marble and going down and all this kind of stuff plays out. But there's just these reveals in this one. Like I said, the, the, you know, the self punishing stuff that I thought was just it leagues a little bit, you know, took it to that next step of, you know, just filmmaking and, and guts, you know, it had guts and just some, some really kind of explicit stuff for this movie. And it's not like, you know, you're not going to be putting it in and seeing something like, you know, extremely graphic, but I was just taken in context for the time and from where it's from and everything. And I said, wow, that's, that's pretty intense stuff here. Um, the acting I think is solid. Some of the camera work I thought was really fun. So they do this a couple times where you have all the characters sitting around a table and it gets really kind of like intense where they're all talking and it will go around and, and there's a lot, it's, it's subtitled. This one is completely subtitled. You can't watch an English show. When you have that kind of moment, you're like, it's hard to keep up with all these characters, but uh, you know, the detective uh, is really charming and uh, slick and stuff like that. I enjoyed that. And like you kind of figure that it has to be one of a couple characters are possibly you know involved with this, um, and, and and the reveal is almost kind of sad to be honest. But I, I would recommend checking this one out. I think this is the best of the three. And as far as the features are concerned, like I said, we have a commentary with Alan uh, Alexandra Heller Nichols, and then we have a man uh, in a Jala brand new video interview with actor Salvador Puntillo. Front and end titles for the Lost English Language dub. Oh, so we see it's a Lost English Language dub. So there was one originally, but we lost it. I figured that something like that. And Reversible Sleeve featuring original newly commissioned artwork by Peter Strand. So yeah, this one I, I really thought was quite excellent, to be honest. And I think most people will as well if you're into Jolly, especially the kind of religious aspects. Like I mentioned, the Italian um, Euro horror films in general just handle kind of like their... Um, you know, judging of religion and Catholicism much better than the American counterparts of the time. For the most part, there's exceptions to every rule, right? But yeah, check out it. The weapon, the hour, and the motive. And the final of the Giallo Essentials uh, Volume 3 box set is the Killer Reserve Nine Seats. And this is very much uh, Agatha Christie style story, like 10 Little Indians. But it's also the most supernatural of the three. It's also the most gothic of the three. And it's also the most horror of the three because of the supernatural aspects, most definitely. And the kind of just style and picking them off. So uh, what we have here is this kind of rich uh, gentleman. And he's having all these people come to this old like theater that his family owns. And it's been closed down because there were some really bad things that happened over the years forever in this place. And no one should go here, yada, yada. And there's some reveals about what happen in this story and you're like why the, why are you here it's just almost like they're drawn to it so there's definitely a supernatural aspect and there's some familiar faces among the people who are here including janet argan from city of the living dead from 1980 and she's in eaten alive and she's in a slew of other films of course um and uh howard ross uh another kind of fulci guy who pops up in new gladiators and new york ripper and a slew of other ones uh, five dolls for an august moon just a really strong guy i like to think of him as the italian william smith which is a compliment of course so um, so we have all these different people in here. We have like a lesbian couple. We have an ex-wife of this guy. We have a new young girlfriend. We have a, um, a daughter and her husband. So we have all these characters in here and they all end up, somebody tries to drop something on him at one point and um, he realizes that everybody here could possibly be a suspect and he's just like, nobody here likes me. And before long, they know they're locked in here and they start to get picked off here and there. Um, there's a couple parts that made me laugh hysterically um, because one of the characters is gets in a fight. Some Somebody sees this person fight after somebody is murdered already um sees this character in a fight and they say that they saw them wrestling with someone masked person they come back and this person's um has, has been hung uh, hanged hung i never know which one's the right pronunciation it's the post whatever you know uh, whatever thing so um one character actually has the nerve to argue he's like well they hung themselves you didn't see anything you're in hysterics it's like this is nonsense like i would have 
punch that guy right in the square in his face. It's like, this is absurd. This is absurdity. So, of course, they're picked off here and there. Most of the kills are a little tame. There is one fairly graphic one. And it's got the whole ordeal where it's like uh, almost legend where history must repeat itself. And you find this old document that's like, here, this is happening. This is happening. So you can kind of know what to expect throughout the entire movie. There's, of course, some twists at the very end. And, uh, yeah, I thought this one was decent, solid, um, you know, pretty good. And more of the horror-oriented one. Like I said, there is a supernatural curse kind of aspect to the whole ordeal. So as far as special features are concerned, we have a brand new audio commentary by author and critic Kat Ollinger. Gotta love that, of course. And then we have Hanging with Howard, a video interview with actor Howard Ross. Writing with Biagio, a video interview screenwriter Biagio Prodietti. Um, Italian a theatrical trailer in Italian with English. And then reversible uh, commissioned artwork by Haunt Love. So, uh, yeah, very cool. Great set. Um, three Jollies I have not seen. And there's so many jellies out there, and there's so much stuff that has not been released. And there is more uh, Italian horror films that are not made by the masters that everyone knows in America. You know, uh, Argento, Baba, Fulci, um, Lenzi, Martino, Diodato, um, you know, uh, Margariti. There's a lot more directors than these guys. and uh, But um, it's cool to see, you know, a couple one-offs and everything like this. And these three, this is this is kind of the stuff I love. And we also have, like, the Vinegar Syndrome putting these Gialli uh, box sets out, too. So it's nice. It's nice. And this one was probably one of my favorite boxes just because it was three solid Giallis I did not see. And they're put together, just like I said... Um, Arrow's been really good about making these like sets, like the Years of Lead, and putting them into context or Vengeance Trails, the Italian, the Spaghetti Western one. Like that was so cool. Like they'll have like one or two titles that you're interested in, but you end up having the whole set. You watch all of it, and you're like, these are all cool. And they paint a picture, and they're like in context, and it's just well done. Especially like the Years of Lead really impressed me because it also learned a little bit about Italian history, and that's uh, that's uh, that's always good. You know, I am old. So I'm like that guy from Monster Squad, like the teacher's like, I think science is cool. I do like learning, especially about film. So it's always nice. Anyways, Jolly Essentials, Jallo Essentials. Is it Jallo? It's Jallo. Some people don't think Jolly is technically a term that should be used. Uh, I don't care. I'm not getting paid for this. This is for fun. <laughs> so check this one out. And I know my friend Duncan McLeish is going to have to have this box set as well because he's he's got the red. He's got the yellow. You got to have the black. You got to have the black one too. Okay, so this next one is the debut, the American debut of 101 Films. They're a UK company. They're getting over here releasing stuff, which is very cool. Because after this release, their next release is Ghostwatch, which I don't think's ever had a proper uh, DVD release here. Most well, certainly not a Blu-ray. But their first one, which is the first uh, Blu-ray release of it, is The Last Broadcast. This was widely available in UK, but now it's here in the States. Um, the Last Broadcast was made in 1998, the same year as The Blair Witch Project, and it didn't get the marketing The Blair Witch Project got, but it's very similar shares a lot of the same DNA. Um, essentially, it is the plot about uh, a group of, you know, kind of like public access, access television. You know, they make this show, and they're making a show about the Jersey Devil. It's kind of low-rent TV. There's a there's a handful of uh, young men that go out there. Uh, three of them disappear. They go out, and one person comes back. They find two bodies. They blame him for the murders. Now, this is kind of a, a documentary and looking back at the case with the footage and, and analyzing it and telling people what he thinks happened and all this stuff, and there's, there's a great reveal at the end. So, the last broadcast... I had seen this one once before, and I thought it was really great. Um, now, it always is going to be directly compared with The Blair Witch, you know, which is, is unfair and fair at the same time. You know, it's definitely from that vein. Um, the one thing that I really found impressive by the filmmakers was um, when they were interviewed for this, um, They instead of, you know, saying that, you know, The Blair Witch ripped us off and so much, or, or they could have they went down that road, right? And these guys said, you know, I don't think that 
no anybody got the idea from anybody. It was just kind of in the conscious collective, you know, the collective consciousness. And it was just that kind of thing was going to happen. And, and they had more marketing and yada, yada, yada. We didn't have it. and But he doesn't seem bitter. Like you, these people that made this, it could be very bitter because this movie, to me, I, I've watched Blair Witch when it came out. It's been a long time. I need to revisit. But I've always, I, I thought this was a great movie. And I still think it's a great film. And it does something that a lot of found footage movies don't really do. And and, and I would say something like Strangeland, which is around the same time, kind of addresses as well. So when you see this movie and there is a reveal, without spoiling too much, it brings up the idea of, you know, interacting with people via online. People that you cannot see. People that you do not know. And... Those people possibly being able to set you up, knowing where you are, and hurt you in a way. And that, that that's kind of the reveal in the last broadcast, that there is that idea that, you know, there's a possibility that somebody that you don't know has all bad motives and they know where you're going to be at and stuff like that and just can manipulate the situation. Which is so funny now because if you look at people nowadays on the internet, they post everywhere where they're at. Though here's where I'm eating right now. I'm out of vacation. I'm on vacation. Your house is all this kind of stuff. And it's just like everybody does it. So many people do do it. So it's just a kind of a, a crazy thing to be brutally honest. But that idea of you know somebody behind some a name and that's all you see. It is very, very creepy. And of course, this is done kind of like a, a true crime documentary from the 90s. So it has that like cheap quality about it and the editing and it will just do repeat things like that. Again, like a director who does that that I really enjoy is um, the director who did um, Nilroy, the, the Curse, Nilroy the Curse and Occult. He does that and he handles that stuff very well when you add a sense of realism to him. And like repeating these lines and stuff, just they, uh, you know, kind of something in the very beginning, do the Jersey Devil and then it pops back up and pops back up is very creepy. Um, so it also shows, you know, the idea of, you know, uh, people blaming someone for a crime and all these loose ends on the crime and, and diving into it, you know, and that's be interesting. Like in the, in the sense of a horror film, for me, a lot of the times, if you put a good mystery in there to figure it out and you figure it out with, you know, the people in the movie, it's always it's always rewarding to me. It very much keeps my attention because I'm personally trying to figure it out myself, you know, and, and it just like adds that layer of realism. Like this one seems genuinely real in, in a lot of ways. And then the reveal. Originally, I was a little iffy on the reveal in this film, but I think now I've grown to be expect it and I, I like it and, and, and I could see the setup and points like that and I really do like it. But uh, yeah, generally this is a, is, a, is a well done film. It's edited in a way that seems genuinely realistic for the time. Um, it's very much 90s and, and I mean that as a compliment because, you know, in this way, um, I, you know, I was born in 86 so I was 12 when this movie came out. I didn't initially see it when it came out. It took years after but the idea of seeing how they handled the edited stuff... I definitely seen programs like this growing up. Um, so like, uh, I, I do think that the first two acts are a little stronger. Um, I do, uh, the setup the, you know, the intrigue of the story and trying to figure out. And as of course it gets closer to the moment, the ideas, the, the possibilities are slimmer. So it's not as, you know, um, but yeah. Uh, so like, it, it's just also interesting to see like how they paint somebody guilty that possibly couldn't be guilty, all this kind of stuff in there. Um, so as far as the special features are concerned, there was, um, uh, the couple of things, like I said, that I found interesting were the interview with the filmmakers. 
and especially them just being very candid about, you know, not being, they didn't seem bitter, although they maybe, it's very disappointing that this happened, right? Um, two movies that simultaneously have very similar ideas and styles and everything like that. And one is, you know, catapulted into mainstream and the other is, you know, I don't want to say doomed to obscurity, but for a long time it was. I mean, it's become more of a cult item, right? I know Blair Witch is a cult film as well, but there's two different cults, I guess, right? Cult films, right? Um, so, um, at, at this point like that and and also another beautiful kind of moment i thought was really good was seeing like how they captured a lot of the uh interviews with random people like so they use like they would just film these people and kind of like give them basic kind of lines it seemed like and they would just like film them for long periods of time and like uh, a lot of that came across poor you know they'd mess up their lines they were just kind of not and they weren't real actors but they said the way they edited this, the way like they would say, you know, a lot of it was crap, but then they would get a moment of genius in there. And you can see that because while you watch the film, you don't notice any negative things about the performances at all. As far as, you know, the people being interviewed are that are talking about the case. But while you watch that footage with the with the bloopers and everything in there, you're like, this looks like kind of a mess to deal with. But, you know, they obviously had some editing chops and they had a good vision what they wanted to do. Um, the release has a booklet in here with lots of great stuff. It has two discs. Um, one is, in, of course, uh, it's a Blu-ray. It, the, the picture quality is not going to be great on this thing, right? Um, because it was shot in a certain way from a certain time. But uh, I, I think it looked as good as it possibly could. Um, the sound mix, you know, the sound mix is creepy in here. A lot of the digital stuff and stuff works really well. But uh, there's a lot on the second disc, um, a lot of features on here. Um, so it, the standard additional extras, there's not an extra disc, but SD. It's an, an SD, not an HD. Sorry about that. We have a commentary by the filmmakers. And then we have behind the scenes post-production, um, production and uh, distribution, exclusive interviews, factor fiction, rare clips from the infamous public access show. Because these characters in here run a public access show. And like so there's lots of footage of them being goofy and stuff like that. Jim Seward, alive and well, performing two folk songs. Lucas, what really happened? Gallery of Gore, Pine Barrens, murder, crime scene, and autopsy images last broadcast last broadcast poster and box art from around the globe yeah and like i said also um the idea of being in the pine barrens is scary as shit so really recommended um glad 101 uh, films is doing that we have so like i said we have some more of these labels popping up in the states uh, visual vengeance 101 films um and uh, i know that like um geez 88 films has been doing really well in the states as well so yeah it's it's like almost like you're being like uh it's super rewarding to be a film uh collector or fan right now so many good releases so many good films getting great releases too so yeah that's awesome okay so for the patreon pick dan the cameraman said do a director na uh, with your name david or dave that you haven't seen any of their films or covered on your show or i haven't seen any of their films so the only directors i could find were the guy who did into the grizzly maze and i i, I was going to do that one but then i saw that uh david air did this one called Fury, which I've had and I never watched, and I hear good things about it. I love war films, especially, you know, like, uh, you know, World War II films, all that kind of stuff. I'm into them. And this had a really good cast. Brad Pitt, you know, Brad Pitt has done so many good films in, in, over the years, too. And as he gets older, he, he makes even great, he makes great choices, too. You know, um, from, from uh, what is Once About a Time in Hollywood, this one, he's just always popping up, and it's just like, oh shit, that's Brad Pitt. So it's usually going to be a pretty solid decision. Also, we got Shia LaBeouf in here, who I'm not as familiar with. I've seen him in what um, the Nymphomaniac movies, and he does fine. I mean, he's never, I've never seen him do a poor job. I'm just not as familiar with his acting ability. Um, of course, Michael Pena, who I know from, you know, more comedic elements. But, um, you know, that's always good to have that kind of character in a war film because, you know, everybody goes to war at the time. And we have John Berthal, who I know from Walking Dead and the Punisher television program. Um, 
regardless of The Walking Dead, you know, he was always doing a solid job. No matter how you feel about that movie, I thought he always did a great job in it, or the show. And he was a good Punisher, and I've always kind of enjoyed his performances. So, and we also, this actor up here is the new kind of character that pops in here. I don't know their name off the top of my head. I know I'm a piece of crap. There's also some other familiar faces in here. You'll notice Jason Isaacs from Patriot, and Clint Eastwood's son, Scott Eastwood, is in here. You'll recognize that, those cheeks anywhere, um, definitely in Eastwood. <laughs> Same thing for Francesca Eastwood. You can spot the Eastwoods anywhere. They have those huge cheekbones. So, okay, Fury. Um... You know, it had a two-hour and 13-minute runtime, which is not too extremely long for a war film. And I'm not 100% sure if this is based on a true story, but I do know that they um, they did interview a lot of the people that from World War II that um, were in the tanks, the tank division. So this follows a tank, which is also something I'm not too familiar with. You know, um, Oddball from uh, Kelly's Heroes, Donald Sutherland was in the tank, but it wasn't about the tank. So, a uh, battle of bulge had tanks, but it wasn't. I, I feel like that might have been more about tanks. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie. I'm not sure if I've ever seen the entire entirety of Battle of the Bulge, just television and stuff like that. Just remember Telly Savalas in a tank, okay? That's all I remember. So, here we go The Fury, or Fury. That's the name of the tank. Um, we have this group of guys that seem to have been together forever. In the very opening, they lose somebody, so they're very sour, and they're assigned, you know, your typical young guy. Um, you've seen that happen in a lot of movies. Like Platoon, they'll usually have that point of view of a new character coming into something so you can relate to them, right? So you can be like, I'm the new, you know, you're seeing all this and kind of be in that situation. They even do it, and um, you kind of up them in Saving Private Ryan, right? Jeremy Davies, who is, you know, I'm familiar with this. And this character is in that kind of vein. Um, he's treated like crap right away by everybody and you have all these kind of like very one-dimensional seemingly characters you got the guy they call Coonass or something that's John Berthold he's like very much a, just kind of your hillbilly kind of character and then you have Michael Pena who's like um just like kind of like uh you know they call him Gordo because he's a heavy like a Mexican guy and he always talks in Spanish and every once in a while Shia LaBeouf is called Bible because he's very religious and and Brad Pitt's kind of like the stern kind of boss but he seems tough but he seems mysterious but all this kind of stuff and you're just like they're very generic and one-dimensional and their dialogue it's it's very on the nose like you could predict their next lines and everything like that and i started thinking man it's a little too obvious for me right off the bat but as it progressed the characters started to morph into more two-dimensional characters and everything like that and that's i i don't know if that's purposely done you know the idea that you are initially introduced to these characters and you think that they're very you know uninteresting or, or very annoying or abrasive which they are but as it goes on you start to see like underneath you know their tough exterior and there's some you know a, a group of people that banded together to survive and war is tough all this kind of stuff it starts to come together right and by the middle of it i was really connected to the characters i connected to the unit and everything and there's some really good dialogue which i didn't you know i wasn't too sure it was going to be there and they have this catchphrase the best job i ever had best job they all say that and it just gets these moments when they're in there and they have these extreme moments of fighting and and it's just like you know it's touching um there's also these other characters that are in the tank units and stuff like that um that and that's that's entertaining too i mean they do the typical lieutenant wolf from platoon thing which just happens in a lot of these movies where you have the com initial commanding officers very young and very just you know was an officer probably you know put in that spot doesn't know what he's doing does not like anything that's very typical in war films you always have a younger character who's in charge that doesn't know what the fuck they're doing and get you know and this doesn't last too long so um actually i think that was the actor from um the 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 crazy um what's the 
the loved ones. I think it was the, the young guy in that movie, to be honest, if I'm not mistaken. Xavier, is, uh, Xavier Samuels or something? That might have been him. So as it goes on, like I found myself really attached to the characters, and you know kind of where it's going to go. And it's going to have this big major battle at the end, the last stand. Um, and it has these, like, obviously these touching patriotic moments, which you kind of expect on a war film. Some people will probably not want to see, you know, something they'd be like, this is uh, propaganda, patriotic propaganda. It's World War II, guys. We're fighting Nazis at this time. Fuck a Nazi. Um, any Nazi. Uh, the only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. Um, so, like, there's this element of, you know, like, uh, like where the character doesn't want to do what he's doing, and, and eventually he joins and they all had like he gets his name and stuff like it's just a lot of cool moments like there's one scene that i couldn't believe was in there because it i just was like are we doing this really very obvious like kind of fall in love scene and then the initial outpack like and and like it just all happened so fast that it seemed trite and cheap but then at the same time i think that's just their point that, that things happen very fast in war war is cruel um, just a little too on the nose at times, to be honest. But at the end of it, like I said, this won me over big time. I like the characters quite a bit. And uh, I am a, a fan of war films, so I really dug this one. And Brad Pitt's great. Brad Pitt's really good in this. He's And uh, he's an interesting character. And uh, I actually thought Shia LaBeouf had some really good moments, too, and John Berthel. They all had their moments to shine, all the characters in here, and I all thought they did a really good job. I mean, basically, just five people in a tank for a lot of it. Um, they do face off against a tiger tank, and everybody knows um, in World War II, tiger tanks were pretty fucking well made so when it comes to the american tanks um yeah they're not really up to snuff but there's a really intense scene where three american tanks face off against a tiger tank and let's just say only one tank leaves the field um yeah so anyways uh fury i enjoyed it quite a bit would watch again um recommended for sure there's over 50 minutes of deleted and extended scenes now that 50 minutes could add possibly you know some more context and maybe it would feel a little less uh on the nose and and rushed if we had that kind of aspect but that would put this over at three hours which i don't really have a problem with um but so and there's the blood brothers cast and crew discussed the herring experience of filming a tank together that is nice um, but I like the, uh, the stuff where they sat down with the, uh, vets because the vets would, and they're old, you know, these vets aren't going to, they probably are all dead now. I mean, this was 2013. There's been, I, I highly doubt any of them are alive. They were in their nineties. I mean, there's probably not very many world war two vets at all, period. Uh, and I don't think there is. I mean, how many? One, two, maybe, if that. But anyways, uh, interesting movie, good stuff. Um, and you don't see too many, uh, war films and, and this caliber anymore, to be honest. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I would recommend checking this one out if you haven't seen it. I liked it. All right, now it's time to hop into those 1980 movies. And I know what you're thinking. Dave, how are you going to follow up the uh, Fury with another you know, war movie that's up to snuff with it? On the same caliber. Same filmmaking. Same fucking everything about it. Maybe even better, okay? That's going to be The Last Hunter from 1980. More of an exploitation movie, but it, here's, the, here's the thing. It's an Italian exploitation movie about Vietnam starring David Warbeck as an American, even though he's not American. It's also got some memorable people in here. And, um, geez, Tisa Farrow from Zombie and Fingers and Anthropophagus. And uh, um, she's on me all costs? I don't remember. Uh, but it's also got Tony King, my boy Tony King from Cannibal Apocalypse, Raiders from Atlantis, Bobby Rhodes. Gotta love Bobby Rhodes from Demons. And uh, The Great Alligator, I believe he's in that as well. John Steiner, who I absolutely love. He's in Cut and Run. He's in Tenenbrae. He's in Caligula, for Christ's sakes. Massimo Malvani, who's always the stunt guy in all of Bruno Mattei's movies. He's in a bunch of movies. He's in Robo War. And uh, yeah, it's just got a nice little cast in here. It's also got um, the actress from, gee, she's at uh, Hell's Living Dead. She pops up in here. Um, yeah, so um, this is directed by Antonio Margariti. I always mispronounce his name. But Antonio Margariti, you know, he did four Vietnam movies. Um, 
and that's crazy to me. Two in 1980, um, one of which is Cannibal Apocalypse with Tony King and Giovanni Lamberto Radici, John Saxon. Great movie. Love it. Of course, you guys know that. And then he also did Tiger Joe with David Warbeck and Tony King. And he did another one called The Last Tornado, which is also a, a pretty good film as well. All four of them are pretty cool. Um, and so this one, you know, it'd been a while since I watched it. I remembered it being very violent, very crazy. So David Warbeck is on a special mission. Um, Essentially, they're throwing him into the jungles of Vietnam to complete this mission. He's got to take out this radio communications tower that's spitting propaganda that, you know, that's destroying the Americans' morale like they needed that in Vietnam anyways, right? I mean, fuck, morale's got to be super low, according to Vietnam movies, right? <laughs> so here we go. Um, who better to tell a story about American Vietnam in 1980 than an Italian guy? I, I I enjoy these movies and I like seeing other perspectives about it but this like you know so you have all these characters in there Tony King and Bobby Rhodes are kind of like the main guys that are with him the entire time and like people are getting picked off in super gory details um, and we have this reporter uh, with him as well in Tisa Farrow so as it progresses you know uh, more characters get picked off and there's this big set piece where like they land at this military base where all the guys are just super over the top basically filthy animals trying to rape Tisa Farrow and they're all like stereotypical weird looking guys and, and like there's some overdubbing that's insane like you hear like the same line four times it's like don't be gross don't be gross don't be gross and you're like oh, fucking hell like so at points you're like this is a little chintzy but at the same time it's also brutal and there's some cool shit about it so I really enjoy this one like I said um, but it does stop in that, that base for a long time and you're introduced to this like whole group of characters led by John Steiner um, and like the movie stops to do this whole entire stunt scene where Massimo Vanni has to get this coconut and it's like 10 minutes scene where he's running across the jungle to get a coconut because he's being punished or it's like a, a weird bet. You can see how these guys have kind of lost their mind. And what happens is, you know, of course the base is attacked and there's a body counts to the roof. Almost every character that's introduced gets killed. Um, Tony King, I love in here. Okay. And Bobby Rhodes. I'm, I'm a fan of those guys. Um, and they're awesome in this one. And uh, so, yeah, David Warbeck is solid in here as well. Um, and the very end's pretty intense, pretty memorable ending, to be honest. Um, like, I, like, I don't want to spoil everything about the movie, but it's pretty cool. There is a reveal, and there's like a flashback, which is funny to me. It's very much like Fistful of Dynamite, um, the Sergio Leone movie. And if I'm not mistaken, it's been years, but David Warbeck is the actor who's in that flashback in Fistful of Dynamite, or Duck You Sucker, whichever you prefer. He's in that flashback, which is about, you know, uh, two friends, somebody remembering their best friend, and then they die. And David Warbeck's like in this flashback, remembering his best friend and then they die in the very beginning of the movie so it's just like this is weird like I wonder if they were like we're gonna recreate the duck you sucker scene because Sergio Leone's the best and Antonio Margarita's doing it too I don't know I don't know if that's just a very common trope or whatnot in a lot of the Vietnam movies in here. But anyways, uh, The Last Hunter, good shit. Check it out. Recommended. Um, it's a Code Red, a Blu-ray. I think you can pick it up at Kino's website. But there are some special features on here. Brand new interview with to stars Tony King and John Steiner. Um, they put them here directed by Anthony M. Dawson. Gotta love that. So anyways, uh, good stuff if you're into Vietnam War movies uh, made by Italians. Okay, the next one up is another one from 1980, and it's He Knows You're Alone. This is a Screen Factory Blu-ray, and it had been a long time since I watched this movie. Um, so, I, so I was definitely going to rewatch it for 1980. This is actually directed by Armin Mastroni. I, I mispronounced his name. But he also did another one called The Killing Hour, which I remember uh, being really sleazy with Perry King. Solid, solid kind of slasher thriller movie. He also did, um, he has two more, Cameron's Closet and uh, The Supernaturals, which is a fun kind of zombie flick, you know. I believe Civil War kind of people coming back and fighting like a, a group of new recruits or whatnot. Um, fun kind of horror film. So he's got a couple 
kind of genre movie. He's kind of under under talked about guy. Um, he knows you're alone. It's probably not doing him too many favors. Okay, I like slasher movies. 1980, yeah. Um, after Halloween, we had a lot of Halloween kind of inspired uh, movies, or and then we had Friday Thirteenth, and we had even more Halloween and Friday Thirteenth inspired movies. And I I have no problem with Ripoffs, right? I like Bruno Mattei. What am I saying, right? But so he knows you're alone. And, and watching this, I was just shocked how much people like this lifted from Halloween. So uh, basically what we have here is um, there is a killer that goes around and kills women on their, that are going to get married. Real real good motive for a killer in a movie that's scary, that's mean-spirited, it's fucking bizarre. So he basically kills women that are going to get married. There's a cop that lost his fiance to what he thinks this guy. So he hears about these murders happening again. And he's like, well, I got to get there. So we follow this. This cop's a douchebag. He does. He's just, he's just not a good cop. He's just very ineffective, very douchey and just unlikable to be honest. Like this guy, I mean, he's not a poor actor. He just, his character sucks. He's dumb. It really doesn't go anywhere. I don't know why he's here. So, um, (laughs) I don't know if it's padding or what. So we follow him trying to figure it out, but we also follow a girl who's about to be married and like, you know, so like the stalk, the killer stalking her a lot. Of course, no one believes her. Why would you believe somebody when they tell you somebody's stalking them? I mean, whatever, you know? So like, you'll see these moments that are just directly lifted from Halloween. Like she'll look out the window and there's like this strange killer standing by a bush and then they're gone. It's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Are we doing this? Like, and I don't care about ripoffs, but it's so close. It is so much a ripoff. Like, and I, I never registered that. Like when I watch Terror Train or I watch Prom Night, like Prom Night to me is Halloween and Carrie, but it's not so bad that I'm just like, oh my God, that scene's lifted. This one was the first time, like in a long time that I watched a slasher where I know people would probably uh, mention Offerings is supposed to be really rough about that. I've never seen Offerings, but like uh, just where I was just like, man, this is so blatant, very blatant. And I don't, I, I'm not going to hate a movie for it. But just, it just makes me laugh, to be honest. I almost find like a layer of entertainment in picking the parts that I'm just like, that's lifting up. That's Halloween. That's Halloween. That's Halloween. But uh, there is one really great set piece. There's a couple good set pieces in here. Um, one of which is kind of like where she drops her wedding dress to get gr- cleaned and everything, or she's picking it out and somebody gets murdered in there. That's a good scene. And of course, I think I, I would be uh, um, doing this movie a disservice if i didn't mention the fish tank i mean the fish tank is probably one of the most memorable and of course it's a very early if not the first role from tom hanks did dungeons and dragons come first i'm not 100 percent sure maybe that was 79 i don't know 100 percent, but it's a very early role for tom hanks he's witty he's eccentric he's fun um but yeah there's a couple murders in here that are, are fairly well done there's some nudity um uh, yeah, it, it's not a perfect slasher movie. It's not the worst slasher movie. It, it's entertaining enough to get you through. Um, it's a good director, though. I mean, like I said, he had a handful of horror films, uh, some of which are interesting that I do enjoy. Um, so, yeah, um, he knows you're alone. You could do a lot worse, but just don't expect uh, anything out of the ordinary from this one. Now, the killer is very much out of the vein of like Slumber Party Massacre, where you're like, who's it? It just looks like a crazy guy who hasn't slept in four days and has been jerking off. Um, I don't. That's how I imagine the guy from Slumber Party Massacre looks when I when I picture him. Like I, he just looks like he's very tired and very horny. And this character is kind of in that same vein. Um, or maybe even the guy from Nightmares in the Damaged Brain, where it's just like, you boy, you need a nap. I, now you can see like after like putting so many characters like that in horror films to kill people, they started putting them in masks. Like we. We're 
we're putting you in mass, man. Like we we just and then we use stunt guys. We can do whatever the fuck we want. These intense guys that look like they need to rub one out. We don't want we don't want that no more. But uh, anyways, I don't mind either if it's the killers in a mask or he's not in a mask. Whatever the fuck. Anyways, this is an alright film. Like I said, I wonder if it has any features. I didn't watch them, which is shitty of my part. But new interviews with director Armin uh, Mastroianni, producer Robert D'Amelia, writer Scott Parker, and actor Don Scardino. Um, audio commentary with uh, the director and Scott Parker as well. And I should mention uh, Don Scardino is in another film from 1980, and that is Cruisin'. Um, didn't do as many movies as I expected him popping up in both of these. Um, more an interesting character in Cruisin' in this one. So Yeah, uh, yeah, and the ending here leaves it open for more poor brides or, or would-be brides being murdered on their wedding day. <laughs> so he knows you're alone. Okay, the next one from 1980 is from 88 Films. This is from the Shaw Brothers Collection. This is actually an import, and this is Hex. It says, before Ring, before Dark Water, before Shudder, there was Hex. So this one uh, I definitely wanted to check out. Uh, from the director of uh, The Boxer's Omen, he did a handful of other horror films as well. And, uh, yeah, so um, I can't show the back. I might have already showed it. So, anyways, Hex. What can I say about this one? So right off the bat, it's, it's a period piece kind of deal. It's very Shaw Brothers. It has like a nice set with a lot of, you know, like ponds and all this kind of shit you would expect. And there's a there's like a lake that's there, of course, or a big pond that's kind of a set piece here. And uh, what we have here is um, they kind of set up everything, this family history. And they say that this woman, you know, she came from like a rich family. They become kind of poor here and she's struck ill. And she's been forced like a man was kind of married to her family. And it almost seems like he's like there. He treats her like he's in debt to her yada 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 she has like tuberculosis from what i can tell and he this guy has scared away all the servants and he just beats her beats the servants he's just an all-around piece of garbage absolute trash bags so what happens is uh one day this servant shows up this this former you know a daughter of a former servant and says you know i feel like i'm indebted to you my mom swore by you i said you were the greatest person ever your family so she says i'm willing to you know volunteer help you guys out here um and whatnot. So what happens is, uh, I guess somebody gets revenge and somebody ends up dead. Um, and then that person comes back to haunt them. And I don't want to spoil absolutely everything here, but there's some fun special effects with like kind of like bloated bodies and, and weird shenanigans and kind of cool lighting, if I'm not mistaken here and there. And I like the water aspect and everything, but before long, it turns into a gaslighting story, which I'm so sick of, especially by 1980. There's just shouldn't be five or six gaslighting horror movies in the same year when it's such like, and there's nothing wrong with gaslighting in horror films or gaslighting in thrillers, especially like film noir. It's kind of like what you expect and those kind of like old style thrillers or hammer thrillers, but 1980 and we have such a cool like idea and ghost story and set piece. This is like, why are we doing the fucking gaslighting thing in this movie? It's really just kind of blah. But um, what happens is there's a couple twists, actually, and it's just like, that's not what it appears. This doesn't appear. It gets really weird and wonky, and then we enter uh, this other twist, and then, like, by the end, you're just like, I don't know whether to <coughs> approve of all these ridiculous twists because they keep doing them, or just be like, this is just so much. It's just getting stupider and stupider and, like, whatnot. But the ending of the movie you get to see like these rituals performed and you know later like the movie like the wailing would have these kind of cool rituals and dances and stuff like this but in the wailing it wasn't performed by a completely nude woman with the kind of the weird the, the tattoos they put on there and they do do the kind of thing like um what was the um geez i can't believe i'm gonna forget this classic um uh Qui Don. 
like Qui-Don, where you have like all the tattoos and everything like that, but with Hirochi the earless, right? Um, it forgets the ears to put the stuff on the ears, and we have that, kind of that play into it, the the thing, right? Because the spells. That, if you ever seen like Chinese movie ghost stories and stuff like that, they have these incorporated these spells and a lot of Asian ghost stories and stuff, and they do that kind of stuff. But the character does this ritualistic dance for like five ten minutes, completely dude. And I was just kind of shocked that they you know showed all that kind of stuff, and it was definitely like a welcome change to the movie, like just a, a you know cool dance and the explicit stuff and and then being completely nude and and shaved bald with the tattoos i was like well this is different and this is cool and i i think if the movie had more of this kind of stuff it would be definitely a welcome presence in there as far as like the movies it's not a horrible movie i'm glad i watched it i'm glad i checked it out and i think there's some two more related movies to this series uh hex versus witchcraft is the same year i'll be watching that for this and then i think there's hex after hex and i think those three are a loose trilogy somebody correct me if they do know i'm not 100 percent but as far as the special features are concerned we have the studio that conquered a continent in introduction to Shaw Brothers with Bay Logan. And then we have Hong Kong language movie with Bay Logan. So there we go. Um, like I said, we're checking out if you're into the uh, Asian ghost stories and stuff like that. You could kind of see a little bit where it came from. And the ending is awesome to watch. I just didn't expect to see that. And it was a, is a welcome change for sure. Okay, next up. It's kind of a sci-fi movie, uh, but it has horror aspects for sure. And uh, I had a real weird experience with this. This is the first time watch. It's listed very high on like letterboxes for as far as popularity of the horror movies from 1980. And this is Saturn Three. Now this is a movie I'd never actually seen. Oh, I just noticed it has uh, music by Elmer Bernstein, so that's definitely a, uh, a positive there. Um, it stars Kurt Douglas, Harvey Keitel, Farrah Fawcett. Those are really kind of the only people in the film uh, for uh, a longer period of time than five minutes so this takes place in the future and apparently there's space stations where people are isolated and all around you know the universe or the galaxy and um kurt douglas and farrah fawcett um are on this place called saturn three it's kind of isolated no one really goes out there the very opening of the movie harvey Keitel, named benson kind of wanders in and he's all dressed to the gills dressed in a spacesuit, and he's in like this kind of departure station and this guy's talking to him very casual says you know you know that you didn't pass your psych test who gives a shit don't try to fight it i guess if i knew i was going to saturn 3 yada yada so we we know that this character in the suit is, is out of his mind he opens the gridlock this guy ends up flying into like this weird kind of this shield where he's turned into like shish he's turned into like swiss cheese he's completely depleted and harvey Keitel ends up going to saturn Saturn 3 anyways. Now, on Saturn 3, we have Farrah Fawcett, who's 36 years old at the time. She's never been to Earth. She doesn't know Earth. She doesn't know really how things work, and and they've been isolated. Kurt Douglas is 64 at the time, and they're they're a thing in this movie. They're completely isolated in a weird way. They're like hippies, but they're also traditionalists, you know, the kind of staying together, only one partner deal. But you you start to get this weird vibe. I did at least. It was very dated. It's like 64-year-old Kirk Douglas. I know he thinks he's too old for her, but at the same time, he's like, I feel like he's taking advantage of her. So Harvey Keitel shows up, and I feel like he's dubbed. Like, I, I... I don't, it was very strange. You know, you, you expect Harvey Keitel to have that thick, you know, Bronx accent. Um, you shoot that man, you die next, Harvey Keitel. It's not. It's very uptight and weird. And he shows up, and he's just very abrasive, very by the book, very on hinged which is obviously what he was he's not supposed to be there anyways and like right off the bat you start to learn the differences between you know uh, how they live and how the modern world lives and you feel like they're living uh in the modern world in a dystopian place where it's so strange like here she has 64 year old kurt douglas you know basically with her and their relationship 
And then Harvey Guy tells Younger, right? But he's just like, I would like to use your body. And she's like, what? No, I'm not interested. And he's like, on Earth, that would be penalized, penalized. And it's just like, like, oh, God, this is just a, this is a nightmare for Farrah Fawcett. And I started to have a nightmare for her. Come to find out, Harvey Keitel's there to program this robot so one of them will become obsolete and they can be separated, of course. And this robot is going to take up one of their daily duties. Think like Silent Running with Bruce Dern, right? He has his little robots. But except that those little guys were cute. This fucker is not cute. He is like a big like sturdy muscular thing but then he has these weird short circuit johnny five eyes coming out of him very chintzy and weird looking at top of that but then he's like this big juggernaut body it's so strange and weird and like at times corny but at times unsettling it's a weird mixture of unsettling dystopian sci-fi and corny cheesiness that's dated so like i don't even know where to think of saturn 3 okay so essentially what happens is um, Harvey Keitel is supposed to program this robot and they basically talk for a while and you learn that it's going to come directly from his mind. He can do it in three weeks. They're also at uh, a total eclipse or something like that. So their communications are cut off. It's like, fuck, it's getting, the stakes are higher. So what happens is Harvey Keitel becomes obsessed with Farrah Fawcett because she obviously doesn't want anything to do with him and that drives him crazy. So um, he starts to program the robot, but every time he puts his mind, his shoes in, he's trying to teach him certain things. The robot's picking up other things that are, are in Harvey Keitel's mind. And, like, you can tell this weird moment where the robot starts to, like, learn on his own and, like, go beyond what he's supposed to learn. And it's really uncomfortable. So, like, at this point, now we have Kurt Douglas, who's in love with Farrah Fawcett. Harvey Keitel wants her and this robot who's become obsessed with her due to having Harvey Keitel's thought process. And, of course, like... At this point, the robot thinks that he deserves Farrah Fawcett. It just gets real fucking weird, you know, kind of hardware-style storyline, the Richard Stanley film, where, like, the robot goes bonkers. But it's different because the robot has, like, this aspect of wanting a human being. Like, it's just a weird film. Uh, as far as the end moment is concerned, how it's filmed is pretty damn cool. Um, there's a couple moments of gore. Um, and, like, it, it feels like at times, you know, people are going to compare it to Alien, which came out, was released a year before. You can see that. But also more stuff, maybe like a 2001, because we have this sentient um, robotic creature, you know, kind of turning against them. And we would have this in other sci-fi films later down the road, like Ex Machina and just Terminator. All sorts of ideas of this, you know, artificial intelligence somehow taking that next step in reasoning and just destroying you, right? I mean, like 2001 is pretty much the, the, the one that you think of, right? Where it understands its flaw that it made and it has to take care of the people, that know about the flaw because otherwise and like i could see that like the thinking and it just starts to kind of bend your mind um like i said uh, i don't know how to feel about Kaitel's performance because he's dubbed and it's a weird thing to do and i don't know if it's his own voice but he's just very stern and dickish and like his character was very abrasive and weird to me and, and unsettling which is a positive kurt douglas seemed at times perfect for it because he's like this old guy but it's also very kurt douglas like oh yes you know he came a little bit like he, he crossed a line to like the you know charlton heston i love but charlton heston can have that like cheese tastic like yes anyway you know what i mean like charles Aston in wayne's world acting like and i don't i kurt douglas is a classic actor right and he, he's always like trying to like push himself in physical physicality stuff and sometimes it you know you're like oh you can you can take your hat off towards it but at other times you're like this is like 64 year old man trying to do somersaults on the ground and it just looks like a 64 year old man doing somersaults on the ground um farrah fawcett's good in it you know and the robot the robot's a star, right? Like I say, this scary-ass fucking robot. And also, at, at one point, I laughed hysterically at the robot while being 
simultaneously afraid of the robot because it repairs itself and it's this big elaborate scene where like it's getting into the computer system and building itself back up and you're like oh shit and then like it's like bow, and you like see those stupid little Johnny Five eyes and you're like <laughs> like I, you're gonna kill me but I'm gonna laugh at you first so this is a weird ass movie like I said and I enjoyed it like it was just bonkers it's, it just unsettled me in a weird way that I don't know why um, I went to like a midlife crisis thinking I was Kurt Douglas or something. Like, I don't want to be old. I don't want to be Kurt Douglas. Um, but I, I mean, it would be Kurt Douglas because he has more money than God. Um, and he lived to 108. I don't know if it was a good life. But before that, before he was in a wheelchair, I'm sure it was great. I mean, that guy's a movie star, right? Um, so basically, as far as the special features are concerned, we have interviews with screenwriter, special effects artist, uh, Callan Chalvers, and actor Ron Doltris. Um, and it looks like there's a, another commentary on here, but they're not listing. The interviews of the special effects artist I like because he talks about the kind of end scene, the big explosion, which I liked. Anyways, it's a it's a bizarre film. And uh, remember, during a game of chess, there's something that an alien can never, uh, a robot can never understand. Sacrifice. Okay, so now we're going to hop into a couple Hammer House of Horrors. And the first one up is going to be The House That Bled. Um, yeah, so anyways, I'll be very brief with these. I don't have too much to say about them. They're like an hour long, right? So The House That Bled, um, this is one of my lesser favorites, I, I would say. The opening is great. We have this really messed up scene where like an old couple is in this apartment and like or this little kind of house. And the old man like poisons his wife. And I just was bothered by it. It was really kind of well done. There's these kind of blades on the wall that are obviously going to get some use later when he cuts up the body. We cut to like a few years later, or maybe it's, it's very brief after. We have a family of three, you know, a wife, a husband, and a young daughter moving into this house to kind of have all this kind of stuff going on. And like, of course, it's immediately haunted, but it starts to have the more hauntings when a neighborhood, a neighbor comes over and they, the two neighbors and stuff like that, it becomes more amplified. So they start to blame her. And we have all these kind of weird, spooky things. You know, a pet dies, very typical, right? When you see a pet in a haunted movie, like that pet's, he's done. He's done. He's out of here. Unless it's Amityville and then, you know, dog's all right. Uh, or even poltergeist. Anyways, a, a low-hanging fruit, you're going to kill the animal in a lot of these movies. So, of course, that happens. Um, and, and, like, we kind of go through the typical haunting stuff. And then at the very end, there's this bizarre reveal. There's some moments I do appreciate, you know, spraying a bunch of kids uh, during a birthday party with blood made me laugh. That kind of made me chuckle. Um, I'm a sick man. But, hey, I got a dark sense of humor. It's pretty funny. And then, like, the very end, and you're like, okay. The twist is just like whatever like i know it's like oh it's crazy it's, it's, it's almost like it's like we can't do what anybody else did what are we gonna do something really fucking stupid okay let's do that i mean i guess it's set up okay i just didn't care for it and i just don't know the point it just didn't do much for me and I, I know i'm being in a negative nancy it's not the absolute worst thing ever but it's just i don't know i just don't buy it it's a lot of it's a lot of uh uh just accepting to to get to that twist and it's just really not worth it so that is the house that bled not not my thing Okay, the next one uh, is Growing Pains. And I, I remember this cover art for sure, if anybody says a jester on there. So this one I liked a little bit more for sure. So we have is uh, a family of three again, and they're kind of well off. And the mother kind of does a lot of things where she goes like and helps like poor uh, kids in different nations, all this kind of stuff. She's very much, a, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, like a human humanitarian. And the husband is working on, you know, curing uh a hunger around the world, world hunger. And he's doing this with a special chemical off a plant, yada, yada, yada. The very beginning, their son tragically dies uh, due to the lab. Some weird thing in the lab kills him. He ends up hallucinating and he kind of falls out of the window and he, he ends up dying. 
Uh, we cut to them adopting a kid, and uh, the kid's very strange, Jimmy. He's very weird. He's very cold and distant and just a bizarre character. On the way home uh, from the orphanage, they almost crash when they go by the, the cemetery and see that, you know, it's, that's where their son's buried, all this kind of weird stuff. And before long, you know, the dog starts acting crazy, um... And, and the ghost of their son is around and you don't know his motives at first and then you kind of get these reveals and you're like oh shit and uh, there's one character that is from like kind of like a humanitarian cause of the world hunger and stuff from Africa that brings up a death trance and you kind of get in that aspect too which I liked and, and you can kind of put that in the same aspect as like um, Two Evil Eyes the George Romero uh, the, the strange case of Dr. Voldemort where he's like being kind of hypnotized in a death and you're kind of stuck in this weird kind of thing like a, a, like I said a death trance and it's different but it's there but this kind of weird limbo um, where this character would be and I thought that was a nice touch I thought it was a little different and I thought that it was a, a kind of a crazy one that I actually did buy in a weird kind of scientific kind of crazy bizarre way but uh this one i think is worth it i, I think it's worth checking out this one this is growing pains uh different than where i thought it was going to go but i enjoyed this one uh as, as, as kind of i would put in the more the upper of the hammer house of horse so far and i think i have five more episodes to check out so yeah all right we're here for you ain't seen and this is kind of i think the final heavy hitter that of 1980 that i'm going to cover that's not um with like somebody else like as a special so this is dario Argento's inferno um you had never seen inferno so that's definitely why I wanted to check it out. The second in the Three Mothers trilogy, the first being Suspiria, which is probably Dario Argento's most popular film along with Deep Red. Um, the series was over with um, the uh, Three Mothers, which came out many years later. So uh, initially this one uh, was made in 80 to follow up Suspiria, and it, it didn't do as well as Suspiria. It's kind of a letdown. Uh, 20th Century Fox put it out, and it was kind of like a shelved... And it was very strange. So, like, after that, we never really got the completed trilogy until years down the line. Which is funny, because he released Tenebrae, which means darkness, which is actually what one of the three mothers is. So, um, this one is, is very much in line with Suspiria. We follow the witchcraft. And the first one, we have the Mother of Size, who's Suspiriorum. This mm -hmm. one, we're going to follow the Mother Tin Tintiri Baronium, well, how do you say it, Tenebrae, the Mother of Darkness. So, all three of these mothers, they, they break down the uh, mythology a lot more in this one. So, um, And it's about an hour and 50 minutes. It's a little longer than Suspiria. I think they're probably around the same length. So, essentially, we follow a character who's in Rome. He's, uh, I believe he's a, a music guy. Is he studying music? Yeah. Or he's studying music, which is a very typical uh, Dario thing to do. And he gets a, a letter from his sister, who is in New York. And she has apparently stumbled across one of these places where these witches live. This is based off like an old tale, uh, kind of like an old tale that uh, Dario Nicolodi um, was actually very familiar with, and that's how he uh, uh, Dario initially made Suspiria and whatnot and everything like that. And she's actually in this film as well. So, in the very beginning, we actually have that scene where um, uh, the main character's sister goes into like uh, that the weird the water area, the over flooded place, mm -hmm. which has got to be one of the most uh, incredibly filmed, terrifying scenes ever. Where she drops her keys into like a room below that is flooded with water, this gorgeous room, and, and she encounters a dead body. But, uh, yeah, it, it, they kind of explain everything in here. Any place that's around these kind of, uh, um, I guess, residents where one of these three sisters and three mothers lives is kind of corrupted by evil and insanity. And that's essentially it. Um, and we're mostly focused on the Mother of Darkness here. So witchcraft and weird things ensue. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, lots of very, very great moments that I'll get into later. So that's kind of the plot and the setup. Um, 
and of course doesn't have Goblin or Claudio Seminary doing his score as Keith Emerson. Uh, a very good score, very mm-hmm. a little different but similar, but still excellent, very memorable. So, what did you think of this one? Um, I think that like like plot wise, I think it's far more developed than um, Suspiria is. I think the you know the original Suspiria like like is like visually stunning, but when it comes to like the actual plot of what the three mothers are and what's going on, I think I feel like it's just really vague, vague and underdeveloped. And and I, I do think that that's a, a problem with a lot of our gentle stuff is yeah I think he he tends to shoot a lot of like vague like conceptual stuff in a lot of the movies I've seen with him. Um, this one, though, like, while the plot is, I think, a bit more fleshed out, the idea of the, of the three mothers is more fleshed out, I will say that, like, it does suffer from, like, an overall lack of a main character. Um, in the sense that, like, you are introduced to characters, and you're probably with them for 20 minutes. And then they're, and then they're you, done you, for. You know, yeah, they're, they're done for. And so, it like, like, like the focus kept shifting um which which wasn't a bad thing but but it well the locations keep shifting too which is cool so the locations like, you can do... see that the lo- sorry the locations yeah. would shift with the characters yeah but but it almost has this like 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 air of almost being like an anthology in that case where um just like like um the house that drip blood it's it's like you have this central manner if you will and then you have these different characters now interacting with it um and and they meet their fate. It's it's the same thing. Different people come across the story of the three mothers, and they're done. And they're done um, for. I love that the book is like a big part of it. Um, yeah, the book that they're always constantly looking for the book and finding the book, and like that's kind of what like brings about like their doom is they start to learn a little bit too much, and like mm-hmm. you never really see the killer. The killer is always in shadows, and like you see their hands though, right? And it's like these long, disgusting hands. And if I remember correctly, I think that Suspiriorum. She had the weird, gross hands too. I, I feel like because they they yeah. show her. I don't think they ever show her fully, but they. I think she is like veiled in one scene. I, I, you mean to spirit? They show her at the very end. Oh, they do show her at the very end. I can't. I can't remember. It's yeah. been so um, long. Just, I do remember her. Her veiled, and you do see the yeah, hands. And I think it's hands. when all the girls are sleeping. Well, they also do the. I think the, the, the hands silhouette. come through through the window. Yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, but yeah, the hands here are definitely uh, a, a cool thing. Um, and this one, they definitely use more familiars. Like in the other one, mm. I think more people are kind of like following the witches and everything like that. This one, you have a lot of the cats, and wherever the cats are, they're like their eyes, they're spying, and they really do really well with the cats. And they set up this. Uh, this kind of like antique guy who has the books in mm. his demise his whole setup is perfect and and his the way he we're going to spoil this the way he dies when i was young i was always like why did that like hot dog like vendor kill him and then you're like well it's during the eclipse it's during the mother of darkness's most important time right mm. during an eclipse and on top of that they're right by her location so it's just like yeah, everybody kind of goes mad with that. And this one, you know what? This is going to be a reach. There, it's kind of in a similar vein. Hear me out. To Prince of Darkness, like I could just see a that. little bit to me. And also, I would definitely put the male lead in Prince of Darkness and this in the same caliber. They're in two excellent movies, surrounded by mm-hmm. excellent things, and they're both very standard, right? And, and like not horrible. They're fine. They're just very bland and boring in comparison to everything around them. And Argento is never really great with his male leads. I think he he gave better to his female leads. If right. that makes any sense. I don't think his male leads ever. I mean, like 
um, the uh, the actor in uh, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, they're fine. They're fine, but they don't stand out as much as the female leads, like Jessica Harper or um, his daughter, of course, Aja in, in Stenhall. I think that they just have more to do, or maybe he relates, or whatever, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's always going to be hard to replace Jessica Harper. Um, Agreed. I, I, I mean, you know, she, she's one of my favorites. Um, I will say that it, it also gives me um, vibes similar to, like, like, the Beyond, yeah. where... And again, it's oh here here's a location and certain things are happening and, and this random character dies in these really unnatural right, circumstances. Right. The Beyond's um, the funniest though because it's just like I'm in the library. I love I love I love the Beyond. Come out. You're like, but why? I, I mean, I love the Beyond too. Like, and, and I would I know this is going to sound really weird. I you know you know the two, the Beyond and City of the Living Dead. And then Inferno and Suspiria, like all four of those. I know people are like, well, how saw they by the cemetery is part of the. Tr-? It's not really part of the trilogy. And 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 again, the the third mother or three mothers is whatever. But I feel like those four movies share a lot of the same DNA because mm. the nightmare logic. That's kind of like coined the nightmare logic in those movies. Like why? Right. But it's just I don't know. The more I see them, the more they make more sense to me in their weird worlds. Like I don't have a problem with like any weird shit that happens. The the Beyond is one that has the painting in it, right? The yeah. painting of the apocalypse. Yeah, yeah no, like that. That and, and how that. We're just not reviewing up. Beyond here. Yeah, um, we're, we're going back to Beyond. I mean, uh, so so Inferno, like, um, the end set piece has got to be one of the coolest things ever. Um, mm-hmm. Her whole speech, the whole reveal with the mirror is really cool. Um, and they do, we do know Mario Bava supposedly shot that underwater sequence, and mm-hmm. it was like the last thing he shot. Um, and you could tell that the dude just was like a jack of all trades. Like, you're like, I can't do this, get Mario Bava. And Mario Bava died in 19 years. <laughs> like, what are we going to do now? And we could, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, Lamberto Bava was assistant director of Mario's son on this and stuff. And that started a long relationship. I mean, I'm sure they were working together before that. But I'm just saying, like, it, it's just a, it's a, it's a damn cool movie. Daria Nicolodi's good in it. And she's like, the, the way that she just comes down and like reveals herself is super bizarre. Like she shows up like 45 minutes into the movie. Doesn't she? It feels like like 30. I don't know the actress. Name. She's the one, the neighbor from upstairs. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. And you feel like in the original Suspiria, most of the characters that were around that were adults were involved somehow right. with, you know, the, the coven or whatever you want to say. And this one, um, it's like the characters are well aware of strange happenings, but they're directly not in it. Like, you even have one of the actresses from Suspiria in Eyes Without a Face. I can't think of Valda or however her name is. She's in this, but she plays, like, a different character. And her demise is just fucking batshit over the top. Like, everybody, almost everybody in this movie's demise is like, we're just going to take it to the next step. Like, if she falls through a burn, you're just like, what the fuck? I like it, but you're just like, whatever, man. Um, I think, like, that there was a discrepancy in in who the witch was um the, so the main character the, the man that's studying music um there's like a very significant scene with this woman with a cat and i don't i thought i was led to believe that she was actually going to be the well she was in italy yeah she was in rome right yeah. right well while, while, while we're talking about the mother of darkness who's in new york right you know so so i mean i i for whatever reason i thought that she was the witch um because she has like two or three scenes and then she like disappears like after the first 20 minutes of the film well, she she's like definitely distracting him mm. and she could just be a regular witch or she could be the mother of tears which right. i i don't think so i think she's just kind of like a witch how the the one witch was in like suspiria like there's all the yeah. coming she's distracting her so she can get that letter away from him oh and, because they do not want him to know yeah, yeah no yeah. i i understand the, the function of what she's doing in the plot but i think it it's 
again with with Argento and like like the vagueness of some of the things that he's writing. It's it's that she's never really explained or delved upon. He goes to New York. I've and... watched so many of these movies that that doesn't even bother me. I've made so many logical steps for these movies, and I think like that's just after you watch them enough, you just kind of accept that. Well, you have to. Oh, um, I do find it very funny that this guy wanders through the movie blindly almost like an mm-hmm. idiot and everybody around him is figuring out more shit and dying like right. his sister the the girl who likes him the neighbor all these people are like one step ahead of him and dying for it and then at the very end he like all the pieces are put in place for him to discover that uh Valeri, never gets the, the Valeri <laughs> the guy who constructed all that which is a really cool idea to have him involved to kind of right. tie it all that together and his, him being alive in a uh, Fyodor Mm-hmm. Uh, Fedor, I guess this is a more pro- appropriate pronunciation. The actor is in the church as well as what okay. is the weird Joe D'Amato movie. Um, it's one of the Emmanuel's black Emmanuel's, but it's not really a black Emmanuel. It's one of the renamed black Emmanuel movies. He's in that as well. The only two other movies I can think of him in, but he's really good in this too. And, and the part where he has to speak in the thing and he, falls, <laughs> he's yeah. in like, like, I don't know why that's funny to me because I'm sick. But it's that, that's just some like weird little sadism, sadism touch that Dario put in there. Do you like it better in Suspiria? Yes, I do actually. Um, but you know, I'm also I, I do like the remake of Suspiria more. But again, it's it's one of those things where you have this neat idea, and I feel like the remake I think realizes it a bit more, goes further with it. Um, but the cool thing about this one is it. it it discusses all three of the three mothers. Yeah. So you like you get a sense of the world. Like you real. I really wish he would have had another one. See, and and that's after. that's the thing. Like like the idea of like the three mothers, these three witches that are you know like 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 this is the stuff I really like. So you know where the original Suspiria falls flat is that it's just kind of there's nothing flat about Suspiria. I'm just saying that now for me. Well, I mean, it's... I like them about the same. To be honest, I like this and Suspiria relatively about the same. But you know, it's it's like, I think that the original Suspiria, yes, it's a, it's a visual treat. Yes, the acting is amazing. Um, but it's just like the actual core of the story, and and it's a little light. It, I understand. It, it's very light. And again, I I do think that like with most Argento things I'm watching, it's Argento is making some fantastic set pieces. But he is very light and touch and go on the story. Um, not, not always, I don't think. I, I mean, I you know, I'm, I'm thinking of Suspiria and Inferno, Inferno Opera, Opera. Um, Phenomenon, Phenomenon. But I feel like they're more. I think Suspiria and Inferno are the most batshit. You know, no, but the stuff is definitely batshit. But but I'm talking like narratively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, plot I'm not focused. Argue that. Yeah, I, I'm not also the guy to go to for what finds narrative be able to follow narratively. Right. Because look at the shit that I watch. I, right, I watch right, movies right. Not subtitles and try to figure it out. Like I think I know what happened here. It's like you don't know what you're talking about. And and then and, and my my biggest complaint with Argento has always been like like plot wise, he's he just doesn't care about the plot. He he is. He, like he, he loves the set pieces he loves the technicality i think of making a film um but it's it's i think why well, I, I tend to like favor more fulci because i think fulci really does get into the plot and then i mean you think of like romero romero really does get into the plot and most definitely character well um, you're missing a huge part of what these those directors all do um Argento likes to dive into themes 
and certain ideas within his movies that kind of like make up for a lack of plot sometimes like when you look at you know the reason and motives for the killers and and you know like they have like gender politics and stuff like that in his movies that i think are endlessly entertaining not so much in suspiria and inferno i would say but like his his more straightforward giallos and as far as Fulci's concerned he always tackles these issues as well Mm -hmm. you know about superstition and all that kind of stuff and just people being a complete bastards and their superstition and being punished for it and all this kind of stuff and and while romero is more of a guy who directly just comes out and says what he's talking about and no one else really was doing right that. so and they're, they're very different to me all three of them oh all three of them but i would say that argento and fulci share some of that nightmare logic of course and like you could see bits of pieces that dario put first forward mm-hmm. that were popular that end up in fulci films right and and and, and what bava put forward that end up in Argento and Fulci films as well. And, you know, but, like, if you look at, like, Fulci's Jolly, like, he always said that he, I know we're getting on a tirade, he wasn't inspired by Argento. He was inspired by guys before Argento right. making them. So, you know, and, and his his Jolly, Jolly, before, like, Lizard of Woman's Skin and, and Don't Torture a Duckling and stuff, they don't feel like Argento at all. No, 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 not, them, no, not like, at all. They're no. nothing like his but, movies. But, but that, that, that was, I think, has always been, though, is my, my biggest criticism of Argento and I'm speaking only of Argento is is that the plot the narrative structure has always been the back style show. over substance that's See, right he's a style guy over right substance. and then and, and not saying there's no substance it's it's specifically the plot and it, it's either too contrived or non-existent um and it, it's not like they're broken plots but so, so so again going back to like what you're talking about like you know this versus Suspiria you know with, with the original Suspiria Again, we're introducing this theme of the three mothers, and you know, like like this really conceptually cool idea, and I, I like it. And I like, oh, I'm really going to like this. And in the original, in, in the original Suspiria, it doesn't really go anywhere. The, the the mother isn't really a significant. Yeah, she's she's a significant force, but she doesn't have like like a, like a presence in the film, like like an actual. Her presence is invisible. Her, she has an invisible director, presence. She, you know, she she has influence, but she doesn't on, have. She does. She she doesn't have. I feel like true presence versus in the Suspiria remake, she has a presence. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to argue that. I, oh no no! I, I, let I, me get back to Inferno here. Oh yeah, well I'm going back to okay. Inferno. Okay. Yeah, you get to talk for 15 minutes. Go like, ahead, hey. do it. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, like I'm just trying Go. to interrupt me. <laughs> but so when I'm watching Inferno, and yeah, the the plot points are are very disconnected. Um, and like <laughs> I said, it's very in, anthology like. Um, I do like it a bit more because the Mother of Darkness is, I think, a bit more present. Um, well, I like her better than the Mother of Size too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a cooler name. Well, no, Superiorium is a. You can't beat Mother of Darkness. No, no, but, <laughs> but hands down the coolest one. But and I forget the actress who plays her. Um, she does look really familiar. I mean, and she is yeah. introduced a bit earlier. But you don't um, know she is the Mother of Darkness. No, you which don't, is also no. a nice touch. Which again is going back to the whole like like that witch in Rome who had a far more significant Would introduction you think that the remake of Suspiria took from Mother of uh, from from uh, Inferno just as much as it took from Suspiria. Oh, it had to. It had to. Like like I and I think that's where. I do like the remake. It, it is again because it it just enriches like this folk, and you know I I am unfamiliar with this Three Mothers folktale. I don't know if it's made for the movie, if it's based off of some older no, folktale. Sorry, Nickelodeon I think brought it to the table that it was actually something that was established right. with her as a kid or something that she knew. It, it, no, what, 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 what's this? Dara Gentu's longtime partner 
Oh, she so she was she aware brought of this it before. To Argento for okay. Suspiria. Yeah, yeah, and but that's the thing. I don't know. I've, I've never done the research of what the three mothers was, but I'm not sure if, if it's very common. Like everybody knows, maybe Argento knows too. Or if it's she like wanted regional, to dive into it. or let me get to the point about Inferno. Yeah, versus Suspiria. Yeah. So, and I would compare this too. If you have no problem with the Beyond or City of the Living Dead's lack of logic when it comes to that, you should not have a problem with Inferno as well, or or something like Prince of Darkness, because those movies basically set forth what is happening. For the reason of insanity. The Beyond says the gates of hell are open. City mm-hmm. the gates of, all bets are off. If tarantulas are gonna crawl out of some fucking abyss and eat a librarian's face, so be it. That's hell on earth. Right. Apparently. So when the Inferno opens up and says these buildings were constructed here to cause madness, and anything around them kind of gets taken into the madness, and we have the eclipse coming, which so when weird shit happens in Inferno, you kind of have to forgive it in the same sense that you forgive it in the beyond. Right. Now, I can understand your complaints to Suspiria because that's not established. Like, the opening of this one establishes all this stuff. You have oh, Larry yeah. telling all this stuff, and it's almost kind of like, wow, this is so bizarre. And it's weird how this movie didn't do well when it came out. I know it's not very approachable, but it's got such a good fairy tale quality to it, which Suspiria has as well with the young girl going. And in Suspiria, they're supposed to actually be kids. They're supposed right. to be like, Which would have, I think, been more effective, but then mm-hmm. we don't get Jessica Harper, so fuck it. Let's have Jessica Harper. So, um,. <laughs> But um, did you notice that's why the door handles are like really short and stuff? Like it, oh, it, okay. it, it did a lot of weird shit, but they made them hall, tall. Whatever, Suspiria's got a lot of stuff. But I'm just saying that fairy tale quality is in Inferno as well, and I I like them about the same. You know, maybe I think I I think I put Suspiria higher just because it's impact and stuff. But I love Inferno. I think it's cool. I do think maybe it sometimes it does feel a little long. So if you're in a, like a little bit more of a tired mood, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I I don't think it's boring ever. It's it's pretty fantastic. I, I will say that um, to compare it to another uh, duet of films where they also have Jessica Harper in one of them, Rocky Horror is the more important film. But Shock Treatment, I think, is the better film. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I like Shock Treatment better anyway. But oh, me too. I don't Absolutely. think it's better, though. I no, just like it better. That's I, all I can... You know what I mean? It, it's probably technically not better, just like Inferno's probably technically not better. I like it more. It I think it's better. But definitely Suspiria is probably the more important. Let me read mine first because it's literally two sentences. Okay. Almost like John Stanley hadn't revisited Inferno in 20 years <laughs> and he didn't want to. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> I don't even watch Inferno. Fuck that movie. <laughs> so, John Stanley's Creature Features, Inferno, 3 out of 5. And Italy's Dario Gentu, famed for Deep Red, is up to his usual writing, directing, scare tactics in this tale of witchcraft. Suspended animation and other supernatural delights set in New York apartment where a gloved killer stalks. Mario Bava was credited with some effects. Irie Miracle and Lee McClowski. Key. Um, what a shit review. That's it, huh? Don't even bother writing in it. Okay. Well, I've already read mine, and I think mine's actually pretty good. James O'Neill, Tarot Tape. James O'Neill's the guy to go for for right. horror. He's better with horror, for sure. John Stanley's more of a sci-fi guy, I think, so... I how like come I always, How come I don't get the sci-fi book? I feel like I should have the sci-fi well, book. Like sci-fi initially, more. you actually started looking through reviews, and these were more wordy and usually longer. Yeah. So you said, I want the James O'Neill tear on tape book, and I just got stuck with the wordy <laughs> shit to make me look even dumber than I already am. <clears throat> Inferno, three and a half out of four. The blank star means... um. Yep. Okay. Don't, don't know how to read this. Argento's follow-up to his masterwork, Suspiria, is a subtler... More subdued affair. Poetess Miracle investigates the history of her pink and violet New York apartment building built in homage to the powerful witch Mother of Darkness and is brutally decapitated for her trouble. 
later, Brother McCloskey. <laughs> is that his name? McCloskey. McClos- no, it's McCloskey. Later, Brother McCloskey arrives from Rome to avenge her and nearly suffers a similar fate. Again, he's not avenging her. Um, He has no idea what's happened to her. Investigate her is the word. And that's yeah. his last name. That's his acronym. That's not okay. his name in the movie. He's okay. not fucking McCloskey or some shit. All right. Oh, so he arrives from Rome to avenge her and nearly suffers a similar fate. With its non-linear, dreamlike plotting and vague, insubstantial characters, this is more like a series of lush set pieces than mm-hmm. an actual movie. A fact that may have prompted distributor 20th Century Fox to shelve it for five years before finally releasing it direct-to-video. Wimpoid Lee is the weakest hero in the Argento filmography, and much of the action is frustratingly vague, but see it for the haunting visuals, like Miracle Swimming Through a Flooded Ballroom, the last work of the great Mario Bava, and suspenseful setups like the rat attack on crypto bookseller <laughs> Pitoa. Facebook examples on how to make a good atmospheric horror film. Music by Keith Emerson. I just laughed when you said crippled. Like, that's how I, fucking you stupid know. I am. No, I, I just love that because he's like, they're hitting me! The rats are hitting me! It's a really <laughs> fucked up part. Like, he's drowning cats in the river and, like, he trips because he's got the crutches and he starts, like, drowning and all the rats attack him. And, and then, like, the eclipse happens and, like, some, like, he's like, help! And, like, you see, like, hot dog vendor run over. You think he's going to help him? And he's, like, running from a distance. He's come over. He's like, oh! Just well, that, that, that's, like, the most, like, frustrating thing is, is the whole cat drowning thing because, um,. This man can barely walk. He's got, like, polio or something, so he's on crutches, and he's carrying this bag, and he walks into the lake um, to drown these cats. The water is up to the man's ankles. But he's pushing them down, like, too, with the bag, so they're, But like... he's throwing the bag... He's not throwing the bag out into he the lake. He did a little he, bit. He, he is throwing it, like... Off foot in front of him. There you, is, and then he he picks it up again and realizes he's got to go further, and that's what he trips he keep, in there. He keeps on doing this, and and it's like you know he's testing the depth of the water. The deepest part of the water is about three inches. You know, the average height of a cat's about like I don't know you know, if you know this, but toddlers drown in puddles sometimes. You know, toddlers do, and you know they drown in pickle buckets. Um, what's a pickle bucket? Like a bucket that you get a bunch of pickles in. It's not um, a thing. That's not a, a thing, thing at all. That's not a fucking thing. <laughs> but anyway, I thought that was some weird colloquialism. I didn't know, but that's not a thing. I, I work at a restaurant. Um, you don't work at a restaurant. I used to a long time ago. There's no ago. such thing as a fucking pickle bucket. When you get a bunch of pickles, they come in like a 10-gallon bucket. So ki- bucket. toddlers drown in 10-gallon. No, it comes in a bucket. <laughs> you never even worked in a restaurant. No toddlers ever drown in a pickle bucket. Yes, it's, it's no, happened once or twice. I have seen it with my own very eyes on at least four separate occasions. I drowned that kid in that pickle bucket. <laughs> Brined in vinegar. <laughs> okay. Um, no, no, so it's like... But, like, he's trying to, like, stuff this bag full of, like, 20 cats in, like, three inches of, like of water. It, but it's frustrating. You know when you watch those videos of, like... People doing things really poorly and just kind of, like... It's like, what is this? He is crippled. Yeah, but he's not, like, redacted. Um, But, like, he doesn't he have, like, a bathtub in his house? Couldn't he just drown the sack of cats in his, like, home well, he bathtub? doesn't want to then have to carry the cats out and get rid of the evidence. You just throw them in the trash. What he should have done, if he was smart, here's how you kill cats, guys. Um, just feed them some antifreeze. Yeah. Or, actually, he should have thrown a rock in that bag, so when he chucked it off the bridge, they would have just sank. Or just, like, hit them against the damn wall when they're already in the bag. I mean, there are well, million. We have a crematorium. You want to burn them? <laughs> there are millions of animals ways. alive. That's ooh, it's hideous. Like, it's like, so like, cool. like, like, at least let me take them out in the parking lot. Take them out of their misery. I, I, I think these one of your, your idiom things. Sorry. Like, 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 a, like a, there's more than one way to skin a cat. 
Um, but no, it, it was just like so frustrating. I'm like, what is this man doing? You you think that this man is like like some like intellectual genius, collects rare books, you know, is aware of all, you, you know, he's an asshole. And, and like 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 I'm going to try to like. I won't even stand over the bridge and throw the bag in. I'm going to walk out into the middle of Central hey, Park. You don't and... ask your doctor to change your oil in your car, okay? You don't ask the antique owner to drown the cats. Because <laughs> he obviously doesn't know he's doing. Yeah, no idea, no idea. <laughs> Anyways, I love this movie. Uh, four and a half out of five, nine out, nine out of ten, whatever. It could, it could be a ten out of ten. I, I just don't really give a shit. It's high. It's a high movie. It's think. a high movie. I'd say it's... Easily a four out of five, maybe a four and a half out of five. It's first time watch for you, too. Yeah, yeah, it's first time watch. Um, Technically, I mean, like if we're talking, like I don't, I we always compare Fulci and Argento. I love them both. Well, the, Argento's movies are technically they're just more expensive. They're 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 going to appeal to you know an artsier audience, I think, for the most part. But Fulci's, I think, are a bit. We just like Fulci. I like Fulci, it's and Fulci. I like Fulci as Fulci, a person. Fulci, Fulci, um, even though he's probably a terrible person. I eat but. the dirt. Because I cannot eat you. Right. Okay, so what are we watching next week? Um, I guess we'll watch uh, part three of the anime vampire. Uh, Whatever it's called. Yeah, Kizumono. Is it Kizumono? Why are you asking me? I can barely tie my shoes. type it, so I just assume since he I still do the dumb way to tie your shoes with the loops. Don't ask me nothing. Yeah, he can't tie his shoes. I can't tie my shoes very well. Kid can barely read. Kid can barely read. (laughs) (laughs) Today, Junior, we're done. That vampire thing. We're finishing it. Okay, let's get into these questions, answers, comments. And last week I asked you guys, um, what was your favorite stolen shot in a film? Most dangerous uh, stolen shot in a film? That's what I wanted to know. And, you know, guerrilla-style filmmaking, like Larry Cohen's infamous for that kind of stuff. So uh, let's get into this. So what the flick? I love Silent Rage. I just bought Chuck Norris' Hero and the Terror in hopes it will be as good. Also, I feel like God told me to would be a great remake with all these mass shootings happening. It would just hit hard. Lastly, if I remember correctly, Tom Savini blowing his own head off a maniac was pretty ballsy moment in guerrilla filmmaking. Nick Mua. Finding decent and dangerous stolen movie shots is more difficult than one would think. I'll give it a whirl. Mad Max, a shot where Johnny the boy breaks a chain on the payphone. Allegedly, May stunts were done sans permission and no walkie-talkies could be used to communicate between crew and cast. Mad indeed. The ever beautitious uh, Carolyn Monroe in the Cannes Film Fest red carpet scene during the shooting of the last horror film. The infamous uh, Ripley Xenomorph meeting in uh, Kyanda David Fincher's Alien 3. I heard a studio wanted to shoot Mr. Fincher into space. Cary Grant walking up to the UN building in Mr. Hitchcock's North by Northwest. Questions. How do you come up with the question of the week? Magic 8-Ball, a hat full of questions. Do you have a bud-type zombie you've trained to grunt? I just randomly come up with it. Sometimes I come up with it on the spot. Like right now, I don't have a question of the week. Might not ask on the YouTube. Might have to ask on Facebook only. That happens sometimes. Um, and then we have, would you watch a zombie movie set in a haunted house? Why not? I mean, Dead Dudes in a House is kind of a zombie movie set in a haunted house. Um was that one from uh, the, the, the Tales in the Crypt episode, right? Where it's kind of that deal where, like, uh, was it Morton Downey Jr.? And he ends up going to the haunted house. Um, where are we at? <laughs> Basically, I closed out of the thing. I've been using uh, my uh, tablet, uh, my Galaxy tablet, instead of using the um, printing off paper every week. I'm trying to save the environment. And also, it's just a waste of ink and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. Um, and also, he asked uh, a scary cartoon. Off the top of my head, do I, ha- I know a scary cartoon um, that actually scared me? I think that under certain circumstances, Pink Floyd the Wall could really mess you up. Um, if you know what I mean, under certain circumstances. A cartoon that scared me as a kid. I know... Um, the uh the three witches um not the three witches that um the one with the old uh um 
the the three kids kind of go into the woods. It's a very witch story, and they, they tell them not to. And the kids have this whole elaborate story where they like stay in the witch's house, and she's like, "Who is awake? And who is asleep?" And it's like the littlest one is awake, and it's like narrated by this old lady. That was a scary ass cartoon as a kid. Um, it was well done though, like in the in the aspect. It was very you know kind of um. T- story just to warn you, uh, warn kids and stuff. Very much, you know, fairy tale kind of story. Good one. Uh, I don't remember what it was actually called. So that's my answer. Um, okay. Um, so I really enjoyed the review of the Amicus Anthology film. Cool. Ilk Vomit. My comment from last week wasn't read out loud. On subbed. He's kidding. Um, I, I must have skipped it on accident or you didn't get it in time. I said basically... Whatever, I record these on Friday. I'll read it again. Love Humanoids from the Deep. I believe it's still here on YouTube. Watch for free. I always put it on the break room for at work. Fun fact. Simpsons character voiced by legendary Phil Hartman, Troy McClure, is partially based on Doug McClure. Doug McClure found the homage funny as children called him Troy McClure when his back was turned. Jesse Diaz. I have always loved God Told Me To. It's a mixture of everything. Horror, sci-fi, black exploitation, everything. The part of the movie that always freaked me out uh, was all the people who consciously who, who are consciously not there. Like when Tony Lobianco's character asked the man... Why did you do it? Why did you kill your wife and kids? The guy replies nonchalantly, because God told me to. Jesus Christ, creepy. Very creepy. Um, that, that stuff's very unsettling. Um, hey, man, rip. Um, R.I.P. to L.Q. Jones. I thought he was going to stick around forever. Always loved him and Strother Martin as pals and Wild Bunch or Bow to Cable Hogue. For Indeed, you know, I recorded that, and then like two days later he had passed, and I was talking about, you know, L.Q. Jones. I would have mentioned it then, obviously. But R.I.P. L.Q. Jones, great character actor in a bunch of movies. Um, always very funny in the Sam Peckinpah interviews. Very blunt, very true, um, and seemed like an honest, honest guy. Good guy, too, seemingly. I mean, I don't know these people. I don't want to speak on their behalf, but I mean, he seemed like a great guy. And uh, he says, I know you're a Peckinpah freak like me. I mean, who doesn't love Peckinpah? Bad people, that's who. The Maniac. Ah, yes. Blockbuster, the Hitler of the mom and pop video stores. Forgive the bad joke. I don't know if this counts as guerrilla filmmaking, but I have to go with the flipping stunt from Road Warrior simply because it wasn't planned and the guy almost died. I would say Roar is the most dangerous guerrilla movie because nothing was really planned. The actress just had to work around all these lions. D. Gulag, love this channel. Thank you. VHS uh, 82, a bit of trivia on your review of The House That Drip Blood. Joey, Joanna Dunham, segment method for murder. Guest star with Peter Cushing, Segment Waxworks, on Space 1999 Missing Link episode. Good stuff, man. Thank you. Peter Englund, it's just weird when you recorded this video. LQ Jones is still alive. R.I.P. LQ, for sure. Uh, Kentucky Kentuckinator, another R.I.P. LQ Jones. Ken Coakley, I was lucky enough to see The Exterminator at a drive-in. And with uh, drive-in with Escape from New York and Exterminator 2. At a hardtop theater, the weekend it came out. There were supposed to be uh, at least five or six installments. One of the rumors was the second one, Dalton, Christopher George, would survive and the exterminator would work with Dalton. I thought that was an interesting take, but George passed away. Ginty did too because he was promised that he would would direct Exterminator 3. The actor you were thinking of from the original Friday the 13th and Austin of the Corpses was Erwin Keyes. Yeah, I, I knew his name the week before. Sometimes I forget his name occasionally. He says, Who am I had the pleasure of meeting at Rock and Shock? We talked about the, both Exterminator films, and I asked him if he was the same character both movies said he was. I asked why he did, uh, he did, but the leader played the net. Oh, wait. I asked why he did did it but the leader that's a misspelling or a missing something leader played ned the burning eisenberg didn't survive oh that was ned eisenberg in that oh i didn't register that that was uh him in the first exterminator i didn't uh eddie from uh the burning ned yeah yeah ned uh he's eddie in the burning he's an asshole and i love the burning's my favorite slasher by the way um didn't survive he joked that he was the lightweight the keys and robert ginty worked together again in monsters tv movie 
A friend's father met Ginty in Chicago in 79. They had a mutual friend. Ginty had already been in Coming Home as Bruce Dern's army buddy. Ginty told my father's friend that he had just been hired to do an action film, which was The Exterminator. I also have this movie from Arrow, which was a very interesting interview with Glickenhaus. Glickenhaus said that Christopher George was offered the role in Deliverance that Burt Reynolds ended up playing, but George's agent didn't tell him about the offer. He was a TV star in the 60s and did a few films with John Wayne, who thought highly of George. Yes, I've heard that as well. Also, Glickenhaus said that the title riff, uh, Ryle, was offered to Joseph Bottoms. The title Ryle was offered to Joseph Bottoms, who wanted too much more money. He also said that Steve James auditioned for the bartender role. John Eastman's best friend was originally written for a Latino actor, possibly Edward James Almost, but James got the role. Steve James is awesome in that movie, by the way. RB, my guerrilla-style filmmaking knowledge is lacking, to say the least, but would Raging Bull count? I know the boxing scenes got out of control multiple times and people were getting hurt pretty bad. So then we have Dustin Mills, the chase scene in The French Connection. Barry O'Connell, the bridge jump and deadbeat at dawn, no doubt. Um, Nick Dame, the shotgun uh, shotgun headshot and maniac. Josh Schultz, Nick Dame was just going to say this. Um, he also says the entirety of the last horror film, a.k.a. Fanatic, Jeff Keith, Apocalypse Now, Don Sullivan. Any stunt from the end chase scene in Mad Max 2. Stuntmen still recovering from past stunts were literally putting down crunches to attempt the next. Pat Lynch, the driver. Marcus Cook, the brain, uh, and brain running around naked through skin deep. Um, Matthew Hudson, since Dustin Mills took the best answer, in my opinion, I will say the train scene where the step almost took out the top of Eli Wallach's head in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and it is a decent contender. I might have been thinking of a car chase in a French connection. I don't know. Dan Tatilla, Herzog having a fucking boat pulled over a mountain is a god tier. He told the army he had a permit and gave them a forge one. Maybe anything, Herzog. Grizzly Man, Zach Puccinelli, pretty much all of Jackie Tan's stunts and a lot of Charlie Chaplin's stunts, if I'm properly understanding the question asked. So basically, I meant out permit, you know, stolen shots. You don't have, you know, you don't have, you're not allowed to be there. So this week's question, um, let me find out when, when was the, I don't really have a question. Maybe I'll think for a minute and then just cut it in here. Okay, here we go. What is the most ridiculous mistake in any movie you've ever seen? Like a boom mic or, or just somebody saying the wrong name? What is the most funny or ridiculous scene uh, mistake you've ever seen in a movie? There we go. There we go. Let's do that. Let's hop into that update. All right, guys, let's hop into this update. First up is Forbidden Love, the unashamed stories of lesbian lives. So, uh, yeah, I, I usually kind of read and, and pick and choose on the uh, partner label stuff. I don't get them all. I mean, it gets very expensive, you know, Canadian international pictures. But this one must have caught my attention. Thought it was definitely worth picking up. So, yeah. Next up is from Eggfa, and this is Final Flesh. This looks bonkers. Um, yeah. Um, I, I pick up all the Agfa ones. After watching this film, I started drinking mouthwash on the rocks. Harmony Kareen. Oh, wow. Um, I feel like he probably was doing that already. But, uh, yeah, this looks weird uh, and bonkers, like all Agfa's titles. Uh, so, basically, I, I pick up all their ones. I, I think I'm only missing a couple, which is, you know, they're out of print. But, hey, eh, maybe they'll come back out. Not sure. I don't know much about Final Flesh. This one here, Night Ripper. Um, I think I had an old VHS bootleg. This is Culture Shock. So another label that I definitely collect. They put out some cool stuff, some wild stuff here. Um, and I believe this one is, so it's the HD up res from the original Video Master. I believe this was an SOV at the very least. It was only in the tape world, right? Um, I, I had Tape Master. Maybe the elements were lost, but I believe that is an SOV. Then we have here Red Lips. This is the Donald Farmer movie. This is Saturn's Core, the 12th release from them. I also collect all the uh, Saturn's Core stuff here. Uh, yeah, it's got some familiar faces on there for sure. 
you know, I, I've seen a couple of Donald Farmer's movies. I think his most famous is probably uh, Scream Queen or, or Demon. Demon, uh, what was the one? Scream, uh, Scream Dream and uh, Savage Vengeance. He's got a, um, what was the other one? Vampire Cop. He's got a bunch of movies. This guy's been making movies for 100 years. Um, this one I have not seen. So hopefully it's pretty good. Then we have uh, Apocalypse After. We got Altered Innocence here. We got a freaking baboon on the cover there. I tend to pick up a lot of the Altered Innocence as well. Um, this is like this one just looks completely intense and, and bizarre. This is from the director of the Wild Boys and After Blue. Um, so yeah, I, I grabbed this one. Included films. There's a bunch of short films on here, so why not? Oh, this one I'm gonna have to censor a little bit. Um, this is a Jess Franco flick with uh, Bridget Lehehe in here. Ja, ja Brule da Part Out. Uh, I know there was a misspelling somewhere where everybody was complaining about it. Uh, Pulse video here. Maybe it's not on there. Yeah, here it is. It's There it is. Uh, so don't want to too much nudity on the back here. But uh, yeah, I'm a Franco fan. I, I tend to pick up all his movies. Um, can I show this front? I can't really show too much. I know this sold one sold out like lightning quick and everybody was like losing their mind. Oh, well, anyways, I'm going to get flagged anyways for nudity. I don't even know if I'll bother putting that out there. Anyways, you know, maybe it'll just be an adult video. Uh, then we have Air Doll, which sounded interesting. This is, uh, De- what is this company? Delagog or, or however it is. So, like, I, I tend to grab most of their releases, too, because a lot of times they focus on strange Asian cinema and uh, Decalogue. I, I like the Asian stuff because they just tend to do things completely different than, you know, a, a lot of other countries that I watch. So Air Doll sounds interesting. Um, yeah. And then we have Out of Order. This is a subculture. Uh, yeah, this one, uh, this actress here, Renee Sudajik, she's in a lot of the um, Scandinavian movies I watched, and she's really, really great uh, actress. So I was interested there, and also um, this is a 4K. This one sounded pretty intense. It's kind of at first, it's just a glitch. Then after 20 minutes, the fear sets in, and then the panic at lightning speed. I believe this is the one where a bunch of people get stuck in an elevator, and there's like kind of a crazy person going on there. So yeah, uh, pretty cool. Want to definitely check this one out. What year was this? Um, 1984. Half the time you order so much, and then it's like two months later they come and you forget half the titles. Um, that's what happens when you're old. Then we got um, this one here from 88 Films, Seventh Curse. This movie's awesome. I'm so happy to have a deluxe edition here. This movie is badass. Um, Chow Young Fat's in here. Just lots of great uh, action. It's weird. Monsters. Just nonstop adventure. You know, like Indiana Jones meets monsters and craziness. That's what you get with the Seventh Curse. Um, then we have Lisa, the Fox Fairy. This is a um, this is a Cauldron Films. Uh, this one sounded really interesting as well. Another kind of wild Asian film, if I'm not mistaken. So I tend to pick those up. Yeah, and that's pretty much the update. Let's get back to the video. Okay, guys, thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one. Me.